0: Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Renee Garrett, and I'm your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. So, before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. For CEUs, each episode is 60 minutes in length and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We do have financial disclosures and non-financial disclosures tonight to read. So, George Barnes received an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for his participation in this podcast. I am an employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I also receive financial reimbursement from SpeechTherapyPD.com as host of this podcast. George has no non-financial disclosures, and I currently serve as the Secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. George Barnes, MS, CCC, SLP, BCS-S, is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders who's developed an expertise in dysphagia management focusing on diagnostics and clinical decision-making in the medically complex population. George yearns to make education useful and quality care accessible. With a passion for food and a deep appreciation for the joy and connection it brings to our lives, he's dedicated his life to helping others enjoy this simple but deep-rooted pleasure. So welcome, George. It's nice to meet you finally and, and have you as a guest this evening.
1: Yeah, it's nice meeting you as well. And and thank you for having me. Really excited to talk about this topic.
0: Yeah, me and you both also have a deep passion for
1: food. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think most of us do. I think that's why what we do is so special.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I, I was telling someone today that when I graduated from grad school, I, dysphagia was probably my least, I won't say least favorite, but least most scary topic. I didn't feel like I was solely prepared. And so working in IPR, inpatient rehab, as my first setting, I got a mixed bag of all the things. And so I didn't really have to focus solely on one genre or another, if you will. And so it's been interesting that when I transitioned to acute care, that's what I spent the last 10 years doing was Pretty much just dysphagia. So yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is just some of the clinical practices that we see that we know have been sort of these big myths and these areas of clinical practice that continue to persist, even though that we know they're really not supported by our evidence-based practice and really not just best practice within the various medical settings. What do you think about all that?
1: Yeah that really brings me to you know I've I developed a a course that it's uh is basically on addressing that question uh, it's called wait uh, you know am I making the right decision and it's really goes to sort of the way that we make clinical decisions now and I feel that we've many of us myself included Have gone down a harmful pattern of decision making that relies heavily on sort of the trend, what everybody else is doing, what we should be doing. And it tends to gravitate towards a very conservative, if not draconian, measure to try to manage, if not control, the risk of aspiration. I feel we tend to focus more on bringing the aspiration risk to zero than bringing the overall risk of the patient declining down to a reasonable degree. So a lot of my talk is basically revolves around trying to recognize our own biases and heuristics because we are not the only people that do this. In fact, uh, there's research that says that in healthcare, medical practitioners are making decisions, we are making errors up to 77% of the time. So that is over three quarters of the time that we're making decisions, we're not making the right ones. We're not either because of our biases and heuristics, or we're just not using the right information or enough information. And so what I've come up with is basically a way to go back to the basics. You know, I introduce a decision-making process that is very close to the scientific method. It uses a lot of different research that I've read about clinical decision-making to bring us back to the why, why we're doing the things that we're doing. What's the problem we're trying to solve? What are the questions that we're trying to answer? And then moving on from there, getting the right kind of information, using research-based approach approaches to really focus on answering that question and focus on solving the big problem. Because oftentimes, we're trying to answer an easier question. That is, how do you stop a patient from aspirating? Versus the harder question, which is, how can we care for this patient in a way that's meaningful for them?
0: Yeah, and I think that brings up a good point of the shared decision making topic patient choice. And you know, I remember going back even early on in my career and we had this patient bill of rights that hung on the wall and the patient bill of rights stated that the patient had a right not only to refuse therapy but to refuse changes that they didn't feel were beneficial to them and it was a sort of a vague concept at that point. But I, yeah, I think that that's a really valid point because I, most clinicians, I think, that have been in the field have really changed sort of that regimented thing that we were taught. This is what a clinical swallow valve looks like. We do this cranial nerve exam and then we trial at the bedside and we go all the way up to honey thick and maybe in some cases, I hate to say it out loud, but pudding thick, Ooh. that's not a actual consistency of liquid. But anyway, mm-hmm you know, back then that was what we were taught and what we did. And I think there was a definitely a point in time where we were fighting for instrumentals in a way that maybe not so much now. I know being in acute care for approximately 10 years, I don't really feel like I ever had to fight for an instrumental. Most of the docs I worked with were like, yeah, whatever you think, just do that, which is Again, if you're not a well-versed clinician or you're not keeping up with the standards is a good and a bad thing because then it sort of gives you that free reign to say, oh, yes, they aspirated, then let's go honey. And we all know that evidence does not support that because if the patient's aspirating those thicker consistencies or if there's weakness, they're not able to clear those consistencies they're at greater risk for aspiration and, you know, what are the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia or just pneumonia in general? What does that look like in terms of what we do decision-making wise?
1: Yep. I think that we had the right thing in mind when we went down this rabbit hole Mm -hmm. Uh, years ago. I think that people may have had different thoughts about eating and drinking than they do now and different thoughts about dysphagia and dysphagia management than they do now. And I think that for, in many ways, things have gotten better. We are recognizing the harmful effects of aspiration, and we have become specialists and board-certified specialists in this area, and we've developed tons of expertise and research on the area so i think we're moving in the right direction but i think in some ways we've gone a little bit too far we've gone to the point that we have nurses at the bedside that are petrified to give anything to their patients because they're scared that they're going to cough or they're you know terrified of a throat clear and as soon as a patient you know clears their throat to say something to the nurse next thing you know they're npo before speech pathology sees them so yeah i think that on the whole we're going in the right direction but i do think like going back to this the thick and liquid thing it's like putting thick liquids honey thick liquids they do serve a purpose Mm -hmm. in certain contexts but i would argue that it is very infrequently needed it should be the last resort. You know that that is not that should not be news to anyone. We all know that, right? It's the last thing we try after doing exercises if we need to, and before that, doing uh, modifications to postural changes and strategies to allow them to eat and drink a little bit easier. If it's taking small bites and small sips, uh, we start there, and then we work on exercises, and then if the patient cannot tolerate and the risks are high, then we'd modify the diet, right? But oftentimes, and I think research tells us that the majority of times we're actually doing it, um, we're actually going backwards, right? We're going to modifying consistencies first. That is our most common intervention, not exercises, not postural adjustments, not strategies, safe swallow strategies. It's thickening liquids, puring yeah. food, and, you know, kind of like doctors are many times confronted with the issue of writing a prescription and then throwing that at the patient versus taking care of the core issues that are going on. I think that we also fall victim to that mindset. And whatever the reason is, lots of patients, not a lot of time, these harmful trends in our field, we often go right to the diet. And I'm not saying this on a high horse. I've done this myself. And right, I think most of us, if not all of us have done this. But I think that the move away from it is becoming clear. I think there's a clear path. I think lots of people are talking about this now. And, you know, again, I think it starts with kind of turning things around on ourselves because we can be the part of the problem or we can be part of the solution. And I think that it starts with recognizing the way we're thinking about these problems first.
0: Yeah, and I think circling back, you know, a lot of times with nursing, again, I'm like you, I've experienced a lot of working with people closely in in the nursing environment and just you know, having a great relationship and getting that, even after years of working with someone saying, oh my God, they coughed. And it's like, well, coughing is not necessarily bad. That's how we protect our airway. Clearing your throat is not necessarily bad. It doesn't equal aspiration. My x-ray vision is broken is one I I say all the time is I can't see inside someone's throat to know what happens next or their airway and see what happened. And so, Coughing for you may be troublesome, but what did that cough look like? What are we talking about? Are they full on red, turning blue, passing out, not able to talk? Are they able to talk? Are they able to say, I feel like something stuck or, or whatever those symptoms are that we really need? And yeah, I think we, again, like you mentioned, we've all been there. We've all done these practices because that's sort of what was the norm at the time and what was supported and probably what we were mentored to do. And not that that was a bad thing, but we, as medical science evolves, just like you mentioned in medicine, in our profession, our science is evolving, and we're seeing that X Y Z doesn't always equal aspiration pneumonia. There's other factors that come into play, and a lot of our patients with these progressive neurological disorders, like Parkinson's and ALS and Huntington's, and you know the variety that we come across. Just because they cough doesn't always mean they're actively aspirating. It could mean maybe Mm -hmm. they have some reflux. It could mean maybe they just penetrated and needed a cough, or maybe there's a little residue. Yeah, and (laughs) it's kind of funny because I had surgery back in November of, what year is this, 23, 21? (laughs) This year is really fun. (laughs) I really did. (laughs) But it was funny because it was outpatient surgery, so they were trying to get me out so they could go home too. (laughs) And so when I uh, woke up from anesthesia, they did their swallow screen. I failed miserably because they love that term "failed," and I hate it with like a passion. Like, yeah, they they failed their MBS, and I'm like, but did they? Yeah. (laughs) So I did. I failed my swallow screen. And I actually had some trouble after I came home for about two weeks swallowing pills, and I coughed within a lot because the first few days I was on a clear liquid, and yeah, I was pretty sure that I might end up back in the hospital. So it just speaks to, I think, our fear too of what does that really mean when our patients cough, and then we've sort of those of us that have been in the medical field, you know, for a while, sort of have this. We're trying to advocate, but we have that fear in the back, the back of our mind that we were sort of taught and mentored on and we're trying to move away from it. But that it's a little tough sometimes to move away from it. Mm
1: -hmm. So Mm -hmm.
0: thinking about the, the research that's out there, is there anything in particular that any studies or anything like that that you've come across that is kind of really guided other than the stuff that, you know, you've been a part of? sort of being a a co-author or a co-presenter on anything that really sticks out for you as far as research goes recently that is really relevant to any of this that we're talking about? Because I think there's a lot.
1: There is a lot. I recently did a course, uh, I built a course on aspiration ammonia and that was really helpful because my whole goal there was to kind of pick apart what's important for the development of aspiration pneumonia. And I came across a, a lot of really good research. You know, not, not all of it was super new. A lot of it's been the past 10 or 20 years. But, you know, and I think it was 2019, Miles et al., has a paper on aspirating thin liquids versus aspirating nectar thick liquids and how silent aspiration is actually more prevalent in the nectar thick liquid group, which I found interesting because oftentimes, you know, and I used to do this myself, you'd see a patient clinically, try thin liquids, hear a cough, try nectar thick liquids, no cough. Let's go to nectar thick liquids then, right? We found our solution. But then you find out this research that actually nectar-thick liquid could increase the chances of silent aspiration. Other research telling us about the risks of thickened liquid. So not only is might there be a higher risk of silently aspirating, but the risks involved with that aspiration tend to be higher. So adverse events uh, from, of course, respiratory compromise to pneumonia to even death in mm-hmm. in some studies where they, they studied uh, rabbit and rat models. So yeah, the research is there. A lot of people say, you know, dearth of research in our field, and we need more, we need more. There are some fantastic researchers in our field, amazing PhDs, doing incredible stuff, to the point that there's so much that one person couldn't read at all which is why we have great organizations and people that are digging in and doing coursework and doing uh, journal clubs and trying to get this research out there. So I think there's less of a problem of getting the research done in terms of conducting it and more of a problem of getting every speech pathologist or at least most speech pathologists access to it so that we know it and understand it and can utilize it in practice.
0: Yeah, and maybe breaking those old habits, because I do think that that plays into things too. It's sort of that mentality of this is how we've always done it. And so even though this is new research, this is what I've always done and it's worked. I think that's another really big um, myth and problem that I've seen in the field is just that whole Depending, and it, to me, it seems setting dependent. And I say that because there was someone that got hired a couple of years ago before I left acute care who came from being a DOR for a director of rehab for a while and hadn't really been treating patients and, and up to speed. And so her thing was on a weekend, well, I don't want to see this patient get a Dobhoff. So I'm just going to put them on nectar thick until we can get them the instrumental done on Monday. Because our hospitals, the one I was at was a smaller hospital without a RAD on the weekend. And the RAD that was there was like, absolutely not. I'm going to complete your swallow studies. I'm reading the MRIs today. And that is the end of the story and discussion that we are going to have. Yeah. So that was a thing for a while. And then a couple of folks that got hired PRN or per diem were coming from another Another setting and maybe didn't have the expertise and, and weren't up to speed on some of the research. And so it was the same sort of thing was, oh, well, we're gonna put them on honey thick until you do the instrumental on Monday, because I was the Monday person who came in to do the weekend cleanup. And it became this battle because the physicians are hearing this. Oh, honey thick and nectar thick are still the thing, and it's so great. And then I'm coming and going, No, absolutely not. And this is this lady was never aspirating any of the things. She just coughed because she felt like she needed a cough, and we don't really know why, because her modified probably looked better than mine, and I didn't have any of the (laughs) multiple comorbidities that she had.
1: Yeah, it's scary. I mean, you talked about yourself going through this process where you failed this swallow screen. And it's, I mean, I'm interested to hear what that experience was like for you. You know, it's being on the other side of things. And like, I always think about in, in one of the courses I do, I, I tell people, you know, close your eyes for a second, picture yourself in the hospital, just been admitted You're a little dizzy. You're a little weak. They're not sure what's going on. So they're going to run some tests. And it's been eight hours now. You haven't had anything to eat or drink. So your mouth is dry. Your throat is dry and itchy. Finally, someone comes in and gives you a cup of water and says, drink it all at once. So you do and clear your throat a little bit. Your throat is dry. It's been a while. Then they say, eat this cracker. Uh, okay, so you eat the cracker. You're still a little dry, and your you know your throat is itchy. But it takes a while to chew it. Have some leftover in your mouth, and the next thing you know, you're getting pureed food and thickened liquids, and no one's explaining it to you, explaining to you exactly why or how long it's going to happen. You don't eat or drink any of it, so you become drier and drier, and hungrier and hungrier, and weaker and weaker, all without really understanding the problem that this. Regimen is supposed to solve. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about someone that's kind of experienced this and been on the other side of things.
0: Yeah, it really made me think about when it happened to me, it made me think about our ICU folks and even the LTAC folks who are typically sedated. And there's some really good work on the physicians' parts of trying to move away from sedation an intubation for every patient or sedation for every patient who is intubated. So that's a whole other topic. But for me, I had surgery. So I was intubated for that, which was probably, you know, four or five hours. And so basically, I came out of anesthesia. They woke me up and did not sit me up in bed either, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, oh, here I am. Where am I? I don't know what's going on yeah oh that's right I had surgery and then all of a sudden I think I fell asleep and then there's my husband and I'm like where did you come from and then there's a nurse like here's your pain pill and I'm like wait a second <laughs> now yeah. I'm sort of like becoming the SLP, and I'm thinking wait I haven't had anything to drink and you just took this tube out and so can I have some water first and her thing was like well we need to give you your pain p- no I needed. To- See what's going on because I was hoarse. I was super dry. You know, obviously, if you've got an ET tube in for any amount of time, your mouth breathing too because you're going to breathe around the tube. We know that. So yeah, super dry. My lips were dry. My mouth was dry. My throat was dry. And they give me this water, and of course I'm drinking it like I'm in the desert for a hundred years, and I'm like, God, give me all the water, and start coughing immediately. And she was like, well, I don't know what's happening, but you need to slow down. Do you need a straw? And I'm thinking, this sounds like the opposite of what I would be doing right now. But she gives me my pain pill. And then, yes, the next thing I know, I have a saltine. And I was just you know you've had anesthesia what do you do you're not going to bite it like a normal person you're shoving that in like you haven't eaten in 27 years i'm yeah. starving man <laughs> i haven't eaten since yesterday so like, give me all the saltines Dr. Dr. and now i will be
1: surfing turf
0: it, yeah so i think that's the case for like you said a majority of our folks that come through whether it's the ed or they're, they're coming in um or getting getting extubated or just even a, a minor surgery that turns into maybe a little bit more major event, maybe they have some bleeding or some kind of infection or hypertension, hypotension, any of those medical things that we know can happen post-surgery or post a lot of medical comorbidities that our, people get, our patients get admitted for all the time. And yeah, when you're on the other side of it, it's like, you're again I was so groggy I was like okay well this is what I should be doing but this is what anesthesia brain is going to do for me right now because that cracker I'm getting after it can I get some peanut butter with that because I want to make it more dry but also yeah, yeah. Get some
1: protein but also more delicious
0: right well and I, I think like you mentioned you know we have to look at all those other pieces that follow because I had a normal swallow going in and the surgery I had was completely unrelated to head and neck, chest, anything. And and so when we're looking at people with these multiple comorbidities, we have to look at the lab values too, because our geriatric patients can really come in already sort of on the dehydration train. Maybe they've got some sodium and potassium issues that they're already dealing with they've got some kidney function issues maybe some CHF we've got COPD mixed in and so all of those things play in and it's really hard I think to throw someone in to be like a per diem SLP into the mix who came from a different setting and doesn't have That medical knowledge because that comes with time and it comes with studying, it comes with CEUs. I certainly did not have a good grasp on that as a new grad. I just got the opportunity to learn from a lot of really great people.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I think that's a really important piece because had I not been an SLP, I would have, it took me two weeks to swallow a pill
1: correctly.
0: Because I'm in there and I'm like, oh, gosh, it's not going down. What do I do?
1: <laughs> Where's the applesauce? Yeah. And you're the expert.
0: Yeah. Good thing I knew to do that because that was the one thing that worked. Yeah. Applesauce with my pills. And I was like, yes, I got it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, just glad you didn't go for the BB gun route because i have uh, <laughs> if, if you don't know what you're doing, who knows what you'll do.
0: Right. Let's get a but, pot roast. See how they do with that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you bring up a lot of really good points. And to kind of piggyback on your point about, you know, having clinical experience and knowing the type of situation and all of the different factors that go into, say, a medically complex case where you're making these kinds of decisions where there's no easy answer or even those that there are no good answers, right? There's just a series of bad options and you have to choose the least bad option, which happens all the time. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the certificate tracker? The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. And we're kind of looking for the easy way out and this panacea and we're looking for whatever brings the risk down to zero, which we all know is impossible And so, yeah, it's scary and it's scarier for a new grad who's coming in with really no background information about dysphagia or very little uh, at least. And it does take time. It does take experience. It does take training and education and CEUs and those long, hard Uh, strenuous, uncomfortable conversations that you have with patients and family members and team members to really figure out what's going on, what's most important and what the best option really is. But it doesn't mean that, you know, an inexperienced speech pathologist can't do a lot of these things and make a really good decision because we all have access to each other, Right. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of really good networks, speech pathology networks through ASHA and other organizations that we can ask these types of questions to and learn on the go. We have, hopefully, if we're brand new, we have other colleagues with us, or if not a phone call away that we can call and talk through some of these things. We have our colleagues in other disciplines Mm -hmm. who can be fantastic resources. Respiratory therapists, doctors, pulmonologists, attending physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, are a wealth of knowledge about mm-hmm. so many different things. In fact, there in the ICU that I work in, there is a a nurse that even if it's not her patient, I will go to her before I do a swallow evaluation and see what she thinks about the patient and. I'm an experienced clinician and she's been doing this for decades. Uh-huh. And I know that her instincts about a problem are usually spot on. So I want to see before I even go into the room, what does this experienced nurse think about this situation? How does she think she's going to do or he or she is going to do? And, you know, what do I need to know before I walk into that room? Right. So I don't think, you know, it. it's dysphagia management can be scary. We're we're dealing with some scary stuff, but I don't think it can be so scary that it keeps us from really making a meaningful difference for patients, even right out of grad school. I think that we can do a a great job for our patients.
0: Oh, I agree. And I agree too with the point about nursing, because in our ICU, there was rounds every day. And so whether it was whoever was the charge, whoever was the unit manager, those were people that I always tried to have good relationships with because I trusted them. You know, I'm in there for what, you know, hopefully a half an hour, but sometimes not that much. And there's so many variables for that, whether it's tolerance of the patient or fatigue or, you know, availability when they're going for other testing or being evaluated by other specialties. And so there's a lot of things that come into play and we may not always have a solid 30 minutes to to do this evaluation with a new patient in ICU. And so having those folks that we can trust and will give us that good baseline information, but then also they're the, they're the people who are taking care of the patients when we do make a recommendation, whether it's a strategy, whether it's coming down and actually being in the room when we're doing a modified barium swallow or a fees, you know, they're monitoring the patient and they're invested because they're there in in our ICU, they're there for three 12-hour shifts in a row. So they're going to see this evolution or this decline. And, you know, sometimes that can be a barrier to care if you haven't had a good rapport with that nurse in a an ability to form a good relationship maybe with the family as well and so you know thinking about barriers to care I think we think sometimes of the physical components of barriers to care but some of those barriers are are not necessarily physical and and so you know kind of can you touch on that and what other kind of barriers there are to care for dysphagia?
1: So you said some barriers to care are not physical. What did you mean?
0: Just access, you know, I know for us, we sedation is a big thing still, which I guess is sort of physical, but it it's not physical in that I can't get to them. It's physical for them and that they can't actively participate. And that's been a tough thing to navigate with. Interns and with some of the attending and internal med docs, is you know, I'm going in and I'm like, they're sedated pretty good. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like,
0: they're not waking up. So, I don't know. Can you just put an ice chip in their mouth? (laughs) Absolutely not. So, just from you know, that seems sort of physical, but then thinking about it more of a scientific mindset of a physiological barrier. We know that if they're sedated, what, what's happening with the ice chip? Where's it going? We don't know.
1: Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of like barriers to PO trials, for mm-hmm. example, there are a lot. I think it's hard to to fit it into this conversation, but number one thing that I look at is cognition, like you're saying. Knowing if the patient is awake, alert, and responsive versus unconscious, uh, running the spectrum from unconscious to confused and disoriented, I think that tells us a lot about the risk profile right off the bat. Other good ways to get some cues right off the bat to see if this patient's even a candidate for eating and drinking is their vocal quality, especially Mm -hmm. right after excavation. They have any voice at all. If they do, is it hoarse, whispered, uh, aphonic, dysphonic, to see how that looks. And then structural barriers uh, ranging from having no teeth being a barrier to chewing, to tumors, growths, zero stomia, and just not having the saliva needed to create a bolus, which I think is a barrier that we deal with a lot more regularly than maybe we are acknowledging as a field. I think that the majority of my patients that I'm seeing, especially the elderly patients, have some serious issues, saliva flow and secretions. So those are, if that's what you mean by barriers in terms of barriers to PO trials, those are like some of the things right off the bat that I'll look at before I do PO trials. Is that what you're looking for?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the same thing that I did. And and I, I feel like maybe the dysphagia courses need to be a little bit more revamped to cover that. Because like you mentioned, you know, we have a great ability to have a great network and great access to mentors. And, you know, for me, I had two really fantastic clinical instructors for my graduate school experience and my off-campus practicums. And there are people that I still talk to now, 15 years later, who are just, you know, just still great resources. And so, you know, sometimes I think, though, when we're looking across settings, barriers to care, you know, some of our home health patients don't always get access to instrumentals in the way that, you know, me and being an outpatient now that I would like to see these folks come in who have gone through this home health course of dysphagia exercises and then their PCP just orders outpatient without that in between instrumental. And so I'm going, well, I don't know what it is you think I'm going to exact here without the instrumental. And so I think sometimes that's still a barrier to care is, is that I don't know if it's a lack of access or if it's a lack of knowledge or maybe a little bit of both, a lack of flow stream, if you will, from you know upriver to downriver. And I think that's a barrier to care is not having that intermediary instrumental. But then also we get our head and neck cancer patients who will come in and they've had a peg throughout their treatment. And the doctor's like, oh, well, you're done with your treatment. Let's just go ahead and pull that out. And then we'll send you to the speech pathologist in six weeks. And I'm like,
1: Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I see that a lot. It speaks to the whole goal of interdisciplinary care, right? Mm -hmm. It, you know, when, when you think about, at least in my mind, when I thought you come into healthcare, I thought of it as, you know, you have all these different disciplines, you have your nurse, your doctor, respiratory therapist, all these different Specialists in terms of the doctors. And then you think of them all being sort of in their own little spheres and kind of bouncing, you know, orders to one another and each other kind of giving information that they can use for something else. But the interdisciplinary team framework is about bringing all those things together. And understanding why the pulmonologist might want to be ordering a CT scan of the chest at that moment, Mm -hmm. not having the same expertise, of course, that he has, but understanding the why behind what he's doing or she's Mm -hmm. doing. And same as what we might expect from the respiratory therapist, you know, what, you know, why and when might a breathing treatment be appropriate for this patient how are we going to be getting this patient off of the ventilator? And when they are off, are they going to be stable enough to move forward with a swallowing evaluation? Mm-hmm. So these aren't just things that we can ask and then get an answer and be done with it. they are mm-hmm. things that we need to dive in with the team and understand why the respiratory therapist does these things, why the pulmonologists do these, these types of things, how are they making these types of decisions And how can you learn from that so that when you see a similar patient next time, you kind of understand the trajectory that this takes. You understand not only what's happening, but why it's happening. Mm -hmm. And that helps you become a much more effective clinician because you can take that with you wherever you go and also with other patients so that you are understanding the whole patient and not just focusing on one thing. Because you, you know, we talked about the that issue with the cough, right? Mm -hmm. When you do a clinical swallow evaluation, you see a cough, and then that's it, right? That's ask the patients aspirating. You got to treat that with thickened liquids or do a swallow study, and then you go down that rabbit hole of assuming in your head so strongly that this is what's happening that it's impossible to get it out, and so that's confirmation bias. And that is something that we very much fall victim to in our field. Everyone does. But in terms of dysphagia and dysphagia management, it's sort of like when you're a hammer, everything is a nail. When you are a dysphagia specialist, everything in front of you is going to look like dysphagia. You are ordered to see a patient for a swallow evaluation in order to see if they're aspirating. If you look hard enough, you're going to see that aspiration, whether it's because they cleared their throat once or they coughed on this or that. But if we zoom out and we understand the whole patient and we understand that we are, again, looking at reducing the overall risk and caring for the patient so that we can help them address a goal that's meaningful for them, that takes us away from just focusing on the swallow. It takes us away from assuming that everything we're seeing is uh based in dysphagia or aspiration. And so we see that cough, and we might think, oh, what underlying diagnoses does this patient have that might lead to a cough? Do they have COPD? Do they have seasonal allergies? Were they just extubated? Do they have <laughs> yeah, do they have increased secretions? So Zooming out allows us to see that, oh, actually there's dozens of reasons why this person might be coughing. You mentioned reflux. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe we are concerned about aspiration, but from a retrograde standpoint, not an antrograde standpoint. So bottom up aspiration versus Mm -hmm. top down. So there's lots of different things to be looking at here and to assume that every time someone coughs that it's aspiration-related misses the whole point of what we're trying to do for the patient.
0: Yeah, I agree. Kind of brought, when you mentioned that retrograde, I had, I can't tell you the number of times I had swallow evals ordered for patients with seizure disorders who were actively vomiting during their seizure, aspirated their vomit, and then, at, you know, had a little bit of aspiration pneumonia from aspirating their vomit. And it's like, oh my God, you have to call speech. And it's like, do you though?
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you? Because
0: yeah. that's a thing that happens sometimes. And not to say that people who don't have seizure disorders don't also sometimes have a component of dysphagia, but that's not, again, we're looking at the holistic picture and those sort of red flags that we, you know, get punched with and that have been ingrained into some of the medical staff. And I agree that besides nursing, I think for me, respiratory therapy so early on in my career was so important because we got to go on respiratory rounds. And this was a different health system, the first health system I worked for. And they were very good about not shoving productivity standards so far down our throat that we weren't allowed to do education with our patients. And we weren't allowed to spend that extra time for family conferences. And we got to go on respiratory rounds and wound care rounds, something I never thought in a million years. Why did I need to know about wound care? Oh, because nutrition and wound care are best friends.
1: Yeah, so yeah.
0: that's an, another piece that I think, again, there's so so many underlying factors and so much research that supports what we do and the and the good reasons for decisions that need to be rooted in evidence based but also holistic and then also looking at what the patient really wants and sometimes that entails the caregiver too in the family and what their support level is and their the overall goal that's maybe the goal for you know, I had a, a patient a couple of years ago who had an ACDF, anterior cervical discectomy fusion, And he, I think he had dysphagia before surgery because his wasn't just about prevertebral swelling and everything that happens after that surgery. He was aspirating. I mean, like a ch- he could have been a champion aspirator before, after, and during. So he's like winning all the trophies for aspiration, but did not get pneumonia. His general surgeon though, wanted him to get a peg. So his goal was to be able to eat something at Thanksgiving with his family. And when he came back for his repeat after he'd been discharged from the hospital, he had like, I mean, the aspiration was like a salt grain And if that had been me, because it wasn't me that did his study, I would have been like, dude, get after that Thanksgiving, have fun. And this person was like, no, honey thick liquids and you can't have solids. And I'm like, that's not a way to live. And so I think going back to barriers to care, I think that's again, you know, we're sort of interrelating this decision making with what we think we know what evidence supports those learned habits that we have and then how do we move past that because again that whole medical aspect of causing harm and maybe being having some sort of liability if this patient aspirates but what does that look like for the future for that patient we know that we have people uh or patients with head and neck cancer who have survived their treatment and actively aspirate all the time and never get pneumonia.
1: Yeah. That's called zero risk bias. Right. When we, we are trying to bring the risk down to zero. So studies have been done on this and they actually, they asked people, they give people two scenarios and they say, would you rather reduce the risk on this situation from 50 to 25%, or would you rather reduce the risk from 5% to 0%? And the vast majority of people chose 5% to 0% because the thought of 0% was just so nice, right? It's 0%. We have nothing to worry about. But they're neglecting that 50 to 25% is actually a 20% more risk reduction. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's exactly what we're doing when we focus in on one thing, right? We're answering the easier question. How do we get rid of aspiration? How do we prevent it from happening at all? And I say easier question because in our heads, it's, you know, we're, we're focusing on one thing and addressing one thing only. When it's, that's impossible, right? There's been research that have showed that up to half of people aspirate in their sleep, healthy people. Mm -hmm. We know that healthy people aspirate on a regular basis. So when you're doing that modified barium swallow study and, and you're seeing that trace penetration, that trace amount of aspiration, that is not what we're treating, right? That's information. That's a data point that you get that helps you solve the puzzle. It's one piece. That is not the thing, right? That is one piece of the puzzle that we use to try to care for the patient. How are they in following directions? Can they use compensatory strategies that might improve airway protection? How are all the other functions of their uh, airway protection working? You know, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What are their risk factors for developing aspiration pneumonia? And is this something that we should even be concerned about in the first place? Why are we doing this swallow study? Is it to reduce the risk of aspiration pneumonia? Is it to make sure that this patient doesn't choke? Is it because we want to advance the diet and get them eating and drinking more? or uh, is it because they're dehydrated and the doctors want to know if they can get them off of thickened liquids? So that's like going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, where we have to understand the problem. What's the biggest thing, right? What is the thing that we're trying to look at and what's most important here? And if you ask three or four different members of the interdisciplinary team and you get three or four different answers about what's the most important thing here, you know that something's wrong, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone should have the same answer of what we're trying to do for the patient, whether it is improving their ability to breathe and get them off of oxygen. And yes, there are, there are multiple different things, but what's the most important thing, right? A patient that is has just been extubated and is still sedated and is totally out of it, and they're thinking that patient's going to go back on the ventilator, What's the most important thing there? Is it eating and drinking? Probably not, right? Mm-mm, no. So, <laughs> so that's why asking yourself and your team members what the most important thing is is really helpful. And and remember who the most important member of the team is. Your patient. Patient. Yeah. Right. So people forget that. Ask the patient what the most important thing is. They may mm-hmm. give you a way different reason or a way different thing than you're thinking, or than the doctor's thinking, or the respiratory therapist is thinking. And so you know, if you ask that question, well, what's the most important thing here, and you get six different answers because you ask six different people, there's something wrong there.
0: Yeah, we need to be on the same page. And again, I think that speaks to the the holistic care. And I think when we're thinking about case studies, I know for me right now, I have two people that I could really quickly compare and contrast, and they both have peg tubes. One is a patient who has had about with two bouts with head and neck cancer. So he had a tonsillar cancer and he had a base of tongue. And so radiation, of course, did a number on him and he had some teeth removed prior to his treatment beginning had a little bit of he actually had microsurgery so it wasn't full-blown big tongue resection where the, you know they took a third robust tongue or anything he had a pretty localized smaller tumor. but he did wind up with a peg tube and he's been on it since last November and so his goal is to eat. He had his he had some complications. Post-treatment, he had a couple of times with some oral and pharyngeal hemorrhaging. He had a sore that wasn't healing and did some, I don't know exactly, this was before he was my patient. And so he described mm-hmm. it as, he said, I did something funky with my jaw. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means, but he does have trismus, which we know again is common in our head and neck cancer population. And, and so he's been mobile. He's not got a ton of comorbidities. He's in his 70s, but he's still pretty active. And so he doesn't have a ton of the three pillars of pneumonia that we know are there. Um, oral care is good. He actually has a prescription for chlorhexidine rinse and he does that religiously. And so he went on a little mini vacation with his wife this past weekend and she came in with him and said, hey, he actually did a little eating over the weekend. He just tried a couple of things while we were gone. And, and she was like, are you okay with that? And I'm like, well, yeah, he's didn't spike a fever. He's not in the hospital. He didn't go to the ED. I'm good. Are you good? Yeah. So we started talking about, you know, maybe it's time we go back and do this um, repeat instrumental. Cause it's been a few months he had to get medically stable and then come and do some dysphagia exercises and get on a home education program for that. And we're about probably six weeks into the outpatient care for him after all this other stuff that happened. Conversely, I have another patient whose husband brought her in two years post-CVA with, she has a PEG tube, no home health, no rehab stay, basically no rehab post-CVA. And it wasn't just because of the pandemic, it was... They didn't have a ramp and he really didn't want people in the home. She's had no therapy for two full years and they want her to eat at IHOP like pancake stacks next week Mm -hmm. in completely different set of issues as far as the physiological components of her dysphagia. And so like, no, like really poor oral closure, poor oral secretion management, poor neck posture, poor trunk. Po- like, it's just, they brought her in and I'm like, they had the pediatric SLP evaluate her, which I don't still don't understand how this happens. Cause I don't ever get a pediatric client for me to evaluate, but that's a whole other healthcare issue. But yeah. So like this other guy, I feel like we have a shot here. I think we're going to figure out something that's going to maintain his quality of life and make him happy. And then this other lady, it's almost like completely unrealistic because cognitively I can't even do any kind of, she can't do dysphagia exercises because she can't follow along from a following mm-hmm. direction mm-hmm. standpoint, stamina wise, she comes and lays her head on the desk and refuses. And then we, you know, East we can't do that because she cognitively can't do exercises while, oh my goodness
1: yep yep so
0: any thoughts on your case studies and, and some of the things that you've seen and kind of that compare and contrast because we're everything is so different we don't have a yeah. one size fits all
1: yeah i mean you're describing two patients on opposite sides of the spectrum which is why you i always ask myself Yeah, so it's not the dysphagia, it's what the dysphagia means for the patient. Mm -hmm. So I, I always have to remind myself, or it's not the aspiration, it's what the aspiration means for the patient. So you're describing two different patients, two patients who may have dysphagia that's significant, but that dysphagia is completely different for those two patients. For one, it could mean life and death, for the other, it could mean a little bit of coughing here and there and nothing else. So yeah, you know, looking at, you talked about the three pillars, the risk factors for aspiration pneumonia, looking at the big picture to determine not only what the risk is of aspiration, but what that aspiration means for the patient helps us determine how conservative we might be with our recommendations. What kind of route we're going to go down in terms of our plan of care, and then going back to what's most important to the patient. What's that biggest thing for the patient? Is it that they want a, a double stack at IHOP, or do they want three ice chips every now and then? Because you, they may su- surprise you when you ask them what their goal is. And mm-hmm. then you know, I like to say, you know, ask the patient from one to 10, how motivated are you for this goal? And then on the other side of things, from one to 10, how concerned are you that uh, this recommendation may end up or moving towards this goal may end up in an adverse outcome? So that you get the patient's preferences, expectations, and values on one side of that spectrum, and then the risk factors and what what they're willing to accept in terms of those risk factors on the other side of that spectrum. It gets them thinking about the whole problem. It's not just about what they want, but what they're willing to accept in terms of risk because all risk is on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know, you describe two different patients who have way different risk profiles, but they're still on a spectrum. You and I, healthy people, uh, thank God walking around going to work every day, have risk factors in our lives. That risk is on a spectrum. Eating and drinking is still a risk for us. The risk is incredibly low compared to the patients that we see in the hospital, but it's still there. And so understanding where that patient falls on that risk spectrum and what they're willing to accept in terms of a risk versus the benefit that comes from the goal that we're striving for helps us determine what the plan of care should be and what the recommendation should be.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, I I feel like we could talk about this for another hour. (laughs) Because again, I think it's so multifaceted and layered. And fortunately, we do have a lot of like you mentioned at the beginning, um, so many great researchers and so many people that are really publishing great research and, and advocating too, because I think it used to be more about our clinician choice and recommendations versus our patient's choice and, and what they're really willing to accept and not only with risk, but are you willing to do exercises at home and not just come in here and an outpatient, you know, we get them for 40 minutes at best and they're trying to move us down to 30 right now. And, How much can we get accomplished in that short time frame? Yeah. So, yeah, that's all of these things are such big factors. And so anything else that, you know, kind of comes to mind
1: that you want to mention tonight? Yeah, I mean, we talked about a lot tonight. I think the big takeaways are trying to zoom out, trying to recognize our own limitations, those biases and heuristics that we talked about. and. Looking at, I mean, acknowledging that these problems exist everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Speech pathologists, we have our own set of unique issues, but they're also commonplace in terms of a lot of these biases that I mentioned in terms of confirmation bias and zero risk bias. These things are difficult because oftentimes we're doing them intuitively and instinctually and not really able to recognize them. But I think the more we learn about them, which is why in in a course that I do on this, I focus first on the biases and heuristics we want to be aware of, these sort of trends of decision-making that lead us astray. So recognizing that we do these sorts of things first, and then developing a plan for a decision-making process where we know we're looking at the right information, we're talking to the right people, and we're trying to solve the right problem, right? We're not trying to eliminate the risk of aspiration pneumonia at all costs. We're answering the question that is most important to the group. You know, developing some sort of process where we can step-by-step look at all of these things, find out what's most important, look at all the factors that are most important, and make a decision based off of that, I think is really important to making sure that we are making the best decision possible for the patient.
0: Yeah, I think that sums it up really nicely, but yeah, I really just appreciate you so much and the work that you do and then the sharing of knowledge that you give to our community because it's very helpful and it's accessible. And as it was mentioned in your bio, I think you're doing a really great job of that. So thank you for being on here tonight with me. And again, I really appreciate you coming on to be a podcast guest and yeah, I just this was
1: cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having good. me. I'm, I'm honored to be welcomed on. And I hope that uh, some people took away a few points of good information from, from our chat. And this is just fun, right? This is just, I love talking about this stuff.
0: Yeah, me too. Even <laughs> though, again, dysphagia is not my jam, but apparently it's part of it.
1: You, well, you could have <laughs> fooled me. <laughs>
0: all right, George. Well, thank you again so much. And just appreciate all the work that you're doing and look forward to seeing what comes next.
1: Definitely, Renee. You too. And thank you again.
0: All right. Take care. Bye. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.